comparing this psalm with a number of different places, especially the book of Hebrews. We see that the words that we're reading here are the, the words that are revealing to us the thoughts and the feelings of Messiah as he's there, feeling as if he's abandoned by God, but as we looked at last week, also walking through to his deliverance. So once again, people of God, give attention. Listen carefully to the word of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and I'm not silent. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths. Like a raging and roaring lion, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You've brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them and my clothing. For my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All you offspring of Israel, for he is not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard, my praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for the kingdom is the Lord's. He rules over the nations. 
All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our Lord will abide forever. Let us pray. Lord, once again, as we turn our attention to your word, we pray that you would, by your spirit, through your word, let us see Christ. And Father, let us be amazed and let us be moved in our affections and let us be transformed and let us be sanctified and let us be encouraged, we pray in his name. Amen. So as we've looked the last three weeks at Psalm 22, there's a number of things that we've seen here. A number of things, a number of different kinds of foreshadowing that we've seen in this psalm. Many things that would be done to Christ and many things that would be done by Christ. The first week, apparently abandoned by his father, he would nevertheless pass this crisis, this test of trust placed upon him on the cross. And then having been made like his brethren, taking on their flesh, our flesh, our blood, our nature, that sibling relationship with us, having taken that on, he'd be perfected through his suffering. Perfected by learning obedience and perfected by becoming for us the infallible, eternal source of salvation. Last week, we looked at what the result of all of this work by Messiah would be. He, as our older brother, would lead us, as the congregation of his other brothers, would lead us into praise and into worship. And as Fulfillment of his vow made to his father on the cross. He would give this people, he would give these brothers, he would give them his own flesh to eat and his own blood to drink. All to the end that they would live forever. And so we saw last week how there was a sense in which worship, worship was God's end goal in rescuing Christ. This was the result, and not an incidental result, the result that God had in mind from the beginning, gaining for himself great praise through the worship of his people. So right off the bat, as we reflect on last week, and especially as we look into what we'll find here this morning, we're faced with a question, a question that individually would be good for us to consider and ask, and that is the question, how important is God's worship to you? How important is it to you that God's name be known, that he be praised, that he be honored, that he be glorified, that he be enjoyed? Listen, brothers and sisters, to bring men and women and children into such a worshiping congregation as we saw described there, as we see and witness and are participating in this morning, this was the reason for which Christ suffered and the reason... For which he was delivered. 
the rest of the passage, the end of Psalm 22 this morning, we'll be continuing in this same theme, this idea of eating and drinking and worshiping and telling and proclaiming. Well, why didn't I just fold it into to last week then, if we're talking about the same thing? In addition to needing four sermons while I'm here, there's a very good reason for talking, uh, for focusing on a little bit different aspect of what we see this morning. The end of Psalm, we have the test of trust, we have the suffering, we have the perfection through that suffering, we have the worshiping. The end of the Psalm adds by way of development to what we've seen so far, revelation of the scope of what Christ's deliverance would accomplish. We ask the question, how extensive would be this ingathering for the purpose of worshiping his Father under his leadership? Title for the message this morning is All Nations, All Stations, All Generations. It's a little bit of a preview, but let's walk through each one of those. Verse 27 of Psalm 22, gives us an indication of how far this effect was to extend with respect to space. Psalm 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. All nations, all people. In a word the intended scope for Christ's redemptive work on our behalf, this ingathering of this worshiping people, the intended scope is global. This spread, this proclamation, this eating, this feasting, this worshiping, this would extend to all the ends of the earth, places even then unknown to the psalmist. As far as it is possible to go is the idea with the ends of the earth Language. It would extend to all the families of the nations. So we see not just in space, but also in race. One thing that's extremely significant, and we saw and we have seen how surprising this was, even to the apostles who spent three years with Jesus, is that this effect would not just be limited to the natural seed of Jacob. David here is not speaking. It would go out to these nations because of the diaspora of the Jews. It's all the families of the earth, the nations that are turning and seeing. Not just Israelites, not just the seed of Jacob, not just the seed of Israel, which are expressly mentioned in this psalm, but beyond them, all nations would be praising and worshiping and joining in this. This is another way in which we see, not that we need anything more at this point, we see that the psalm is addressing a reality and a fulfillment unimaginably beyond the scope of anything within the circumstances of David. This is spoken of one to whom, in Psalm 2, the nations would be given as a possession. This is the one who would bring also the Gentiles in to Israel's worship of Israel's God. Now, we see that this phenomenon is spoken of in a number of other places. Actually, we've sung a couple of them, and we will continue to single a couple of them. But just listen, the cumulative effect of this is important. Psalm 
All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Psalm 102, 15. Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. Isaiah 2, verse 2. All the nations shall flow to the mountain of the house of the Lord. Jeremiah 3, 17. All nations shall gather to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. Jeremiah 16. To you, Lord, shall the nations come from the ends of the earth and say, Our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, worthless things, in which there is no profit. Daniel 7. To him was given a dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Zephaniah 3.9 For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Malachi 1.11 For from the rising of the sun to its setting my name will be great among the nations and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. This is speaking of the work of Messiah that we have just been engaging with. Now the question, one question. How does this happen? By what kind of process do the scriptures describe the nations being brought into this kind of relationship with God, brought into this worship. Is this something, and this is the way I grew up being taught, is this something that would be a coercive, forceful, violent subduing? Are we talking here in these passages just about something that would happen only after Christ's return and only in glory and judgment? Look at the very language of the psalm we're looking at. No, it, it's, this is a remembering. This is a returning. The idea we see in Psalm 22 is the nations returning to something which they had previously lost. We're reminded here of Paul's words on the Areopagus, Acts 17, preaching to the Gentiles there. He said, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place for this reason, to this end, that they should seek God. And perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. The families of the nations language here indicates that what Messiah would do is fulfill God's promise to Abraham to bless the nations. Remember, shortly after the Tower of Babel, Shortly after the Tower of Babel, that this promise comes to Abram, shortly after the sin and the scattering of the nations, that God made this covenant with him, of which the final blessing of the nations in Christ was always the end goal. What David is describing here in Psalm 22 is the reversal of Babel, which was about the wandering away from the worship of the true God and the wandering into the worship of false gods. Psalm 22 says, not forever. Not forever. Continue in Psalm 22. We see that also this votive feast. Remember the votive feast was you would be in trouble. You would call out to God. You would promise when I'm 
relieved from this distress. I will go to your temple. I will proclaim, this is what God has done for me. And I will give an offering, an offering not to be burnt, an offering to be shared, so that all the people around me, especially the poor and the needy, can eat and share in my giving of praise for God's redemption in my life. We see this language now continuing, not just with the people of Israel, but continuing as the gospel goes out and as the people are gathered in. And if the Lord's Supper is still in view here, as I think it is, this indicates a gathering of these worshipers, not just generally, but specifically into Christ's church. As Jesus said in John 6, 51, the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give the life of the world. All right, now we hear this. We hear these, we hear these predictions. We hear maybe even the kind of spin that I'm putting on them, and we ask, okay, uh, how could this ever actually be the condition of the nations? How could this ever happen? I mean, are you aware, Pastor Brad, of the condition of mankind? Are you aware of the hardness of men's hearts? Are you aware of the pervasiveness of sin in all of our cultures? I am. On what grounds then? How can we ever conceive of something like this being a reality? On what grounds? What is the basis of such a prediction? Well, David offers it to us. He answers, how can we ever expect something to happen? For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. The rule of all nations belongs to Yahweh. He has the right, and this is where we get hung up. He has the ability to do with them whatever he pleases. All of them are his, without exception. Okay, but maybe we can think of some things that could keep God from doing what he intended to do. Of course we can't. Yes, but man's art is so hard. Well, the success of God's plan for the nations is not going to be determined and limited by the hardness of man's heart. It's going to be limited only by the scope of his sovereignty. We know what God does to stony hearts. He takes them out and he replaces them with hearts of flesh, hearts that will obey him. Prophets are filled with this language. And as far as about bringing a change of this kind, he does it. We're all here as evidence of that. Yes, but we're few and they are many. Do you really think that it's any more difficult for God to change a billion hearts than it is for him to change just one? So, so far, David has presented to us this scope of place and of race, all nations, all families of the earth. All of these, the psalm tells us, will be brought in through remembering and through returning to worship God. So that's the geographic and the ethnic scope of the participation in this worship and in this feast. The next verse gives us another aspect, the extent, the scope of this worshipful feast. Verse 29 says, all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. And then before him shall bow down um, all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Now, the poor and afflicted, we've already seen their involvement in this. But this psalm also envisions a day in which even those powerful by the world's standards would recognize 
their need. Remember what Jesus said about rich men entering the kingdom of God. Is it impossible? Yeah. It's impossible with man. But he says, nothing is impossible with God. And in addition to the, the higher in status, we have again the Psalm's emphasis on the weak and the desperate. This picture then of these feasters is the rich and poor, the healthy and the sick together. Now, I've had this conversation enough times with people that I think it's probably important. I stress something here before we move on. What about suffering? The scripture promises the Christian a life of suffering. And this is absolutely true. Suffering continues to be part of the equation. And this should be clear enough if we just remember the context for what we're talking about now. All of this has been the result of the Messiah's suffering. It began with an act of suffering. It continues through suffering. And it's through suffering that we are to continue to expect God's program to unfold. I've heard before, oh, how, can, how can you say the kinds of things you're saying about the future? Don't you know that the kingdom of God advances through suffering? And I said, yes, I believe the kingdom of God advances through suffering. Because suffering is not given to the Christian as an end in itself. Suffering is a means that's given, and that suffering bears fruit, according to Scripture. And we see that the suffering includes our death, but we've also seen from the psalm that not even death can interfere with our continued participation in this great assembly of praise. So, universal in geographic and ethnic scope, all nations. Universal in its class inclusion. Rich, poor, powerful, weak, all stations. And so now the last question that the psalmist begins to address. The extent of this ingathering of worshipers into this feast. The extent and scope in time. For how long would the nations be brought in to worship and serve Yahweh? Spirit, speaking through David, says in verse 30, Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. From the first witness to posterity, on to coming generations, and to peoples yet unborn. The picture painted here for the, by the psalmist is this process going on from generation to generation. And do we not remember that Christ promised that he would build his church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it? It will not be stopped. It will not be hindered. The verses also point us to another important aspect of this ingathering, and that is, again, the means by which it would be accomplished. Many, excited by the, the psalmist's vision here, have mistakenly, through the centuries, taken up what the Scripture clearly outlines as inappropriate means to bringing this about. Political means, maybe even military means, to bring about the result here. But we know that that's not 
how that goes. Paul told us. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 10 about the kinds of instruments and the kind of weapons that are in this. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Listen to the means that's sort of expressed in Psalm 138, one of them that we looked at. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. We're back again to this idea of proclamation. The means by which these effects are accomplished is by the continued proclamation of the word. The whole spread of this worshipful feast begins with Christ. I will proclaim your name to my brothers. It continues with those brothers proclaiming his name to the nations. And now this spread continues with the same telling and proclamation. This is the way that this fulfillment continues to be realized from one generation until the next, until Christ's Return And what does this do? This highlights for us the importance, the absolute importance of evangelism and the process that God is carrying out here. It also highlights the importance of our instructing our children. Children, listen. This shows how important it is for you to be listening to your parents as they teach you these things. Children, this is the job that you'll be inheriting and what you'll need to do with your own children when you have them. Telling and proclamation of what? Well, of God's righteousness, the psalm says. Specifically, his saving acts. And even more specifically, the one saving act which is featured in this psalm. That is, the suffering and the deliverance, and the worship of Christ. We see this at the end, that he has done it. Or some translations say that he has accomplished it. It's the suffering and deliverance and the raising of Christ and the proclamation of that that are accomplishing this great gathering of all nations into the obedience of the faith. This is the gospel. This is the power to save all who believe. It's that end which is declared in the Great Commission in which Christ told his disciples, not, see if you can make a couple disciples here, see if you can make a couple disciples here. No, not to make a few here and there, but to make all nations into disciples. That's what the church was commanded to do by Christ. So, all nations, all stations, all generations until the return of Christ and the end of history. A global repentance of the Gentiles to the worship of Yahweh. Do you have room for this kind of hope and your expectation for the future. 
If you don't, I encourage you to take another longer, deeper, and wider look at the Scriptures. Just word search, nation in the Psalms. Now, preaching to the choir here, but I said a couple of weeks ago, I think, a significant part of the weakness of our eschatology is our disregard for the Psalms. You can't sing the Psalms every week and not have this idea presented to you over and over and over and over again in its fullness. Is it a mistake for Christians to have no room in their theology for suffering? No room for apostasy of a culture? Yes, it's a mistake for Christians not to recognize that as a possibility. But it's equally a mistake. Uh, No, it's a worse mistake, I would say, to fail to leave room for the hope that's expressed over and over and over and over and over again in the prophets. I know it doesn't look great out there. I still haven't decided whether it's worth in Canada, worse in Canada or the United States. <laughs> but I know that it does not look good. It is hard to read the Psalms and hear this and look around and see what's going on and say, how in the world ever? What difference does that make? What difference does that make to those who have the word of God and what God has promised to do? How concerned need we be about what we see with our eyes when we have the promise of God's word? But let's concede that. Let's say, no, it's important what we see. Okay. What if we merely look at that? What if we merely consider, again, not the past five decades, not the past 200 years. What if we consider the last 2,000 years of church history? Remember, this ingathering of the nations that was prophesied a 1,000 years before Christ came has already now been happening for the last 2,000 years. The whole of the Eastern Roman Empire falls to Christ. The whole of the Western Roman Empire falls to Christ. The whole of pagan Europe. If you want to read some exciting stories, the stories of the first missionaries into barbaric Europe where they were still eating one another. Those are encouraging stories. We look back to our godly heritage and we see the spiritual capital that seems to have been lost and we forget our ancestors used to eat one another. Has the, has the spread, has the progress of Christ's kingdom always been a straight line? No. Has it always been manifested to the same degree in every age? It hasn't. There have obviously been serious, apparent setbacks. This shouldn't be a surprise to us either. Christ himself, speaking to the churches of Revelation, told some of them, if you do not shape up, your lampstand is going to be taken out. And there have been lampstands removed along the way. But along the way also we have plenty, if all we're using is our eyes, to look back on and see that God has already been bringing this about powerfully on a huge scale. And people of God, it isn't over. It's not over. We have the Islamic empire in front of us. We have the whole empire of secularism in front of us. Are these going to stop the progress of Christ's kingdom? 
And again, part of the thing, we're not even just looking at the wrong time, we're looking at the wrong place. There are people who are not crazy talking about 30,000 converts a day in China. I wish Arash were here to, to back me up on this next one. But in 1979, there were 500, that's a five with two zeros, believers in Iran. Just recently reported, we crossed the million mark in Iran. In Iran. This is not over, folks. It's not over. Not even close. We can take encouragement from the manifest, ongoing, historic, and present fulfillment on a massive scale of this very prophecy that we read from David. And regardless of what happens in your nation, what happens in my nation, what happens in our day, that spread is not going to stop. On the basis of God's word, we can say with confidence that this ingathering to the worshipers of Yahweh is going to continue to happen, and it will continue until God's desired end, as he describes it, is accomplished. That seed, that seed will grow until it becomes the greatest tree in the garden. That leaven will expand until the whole lump is leavened. Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What is the intent of this text? Well, I think we saw the the most focused expression of that intent last week. This psalm is a call to worship. This is the ultimate end to which we are called. This psalm is a continued call to evangelism. It's a continued call to instruct our children in the faith. But I think we should not neglect the intent of this psalm as being a call to hope. A hope which, if if properly embraced, can give us the kind of courage and joy that we need to fulfill all the rest of the things that we're called to do. The reason that some religions are so zealous in their efforts to proselytize is because they have come to believe that they're going to win. People of God, God has determined that it will bring him the most glory to bring all nations and all stations and all generations at length to worship him. And the power of his grace is sufficient to accomplish it. The means that he has given us are perfectly sufficient for us to do our part in pursuing this. Don't be discouraged by what you see. Have hope. This can't fail. Let's pray. Father, how frequently, like Christ's apostles, are we slow to believe everything that the prophets said? We know, Father, that this. This is not our final 
home. We know, Lord, that this is not our final resting place. We know that you will renew the heavens and earth. We also know, Father, that you have given us a mission. And not only have you given us a mission, Lord, but you've given us clue after clue after clue that you intend to have it fulfilled. And so we pray. We pray that you would give us courage. We pray that you would give us joy. We pray that you would give us hope. We pray that you would, Father, help us to embrace what the scriptures lead us to expect. Let us pursue it. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If our men will come forward now, we will now prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Reading from Mark's Gospel this morning. Mark says, and as they, meaning Jesus and his apostles, were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant. By faith, receive the blessing of the Lord. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Amen.